Greetings, good people. Welcome to Who Knows It's Just Life, the podcast. I'm your host, Kyle. Thank you for fitting me into your day today. On today's episode, I will be talking about politics. It's a topic that I kind of have dabbled into here and there on a couple of episodes in the past, and I'll likely talk about it again. Today, I just feel like, you know, getting on my soapbox a little bit on a couple of issues that I think are of, of significant importance, or at least they just feel real relevant right now in the political season. We're in primary season right now. A lot of important primaries have already taken place. Mine uh, will be in towards, towards the end of July here in Maryland. Um, so, yeah, it's just a... a very interesting time to talk about politics and some really kind of a little bit of, more specifically about our political process and how we do what we do here in the United States. Um, but first, I want to do some updates, which are really, really regrettable and sad updates. I, I, I had an episode at the beginning of May about on choosing violence, and I mean... May was just a terrible month with respect to violence. And I'm not even talking about the wars in Ukraine and in the the Tigray region in Ethiopia. Not even two weeks after that episode dropped, a very famous Palestinian-American journalist, Shireen Abu Akleh, was killed by Israeli forces in Israel. And I know initial reports, you know, Israel initially said they had nothing to do with it, but I think now it's pretty clear that that their military folks uh, more or less intentionally targeted the journalists um, and in that in that shooting, um, and she was killed. And it's just a tragic moment in the journalistic community, um, but really, it's it's a tragedy for for the world to see something like that happen, and. In addition to that, not not only that, to add insult to injury, I saw footage of her pallbearers being attacked and, and, you know, harassed by people, assaulted by people when they were trying to do her going home service. And so, I don't know, it just sucks. It just sucks. Then, of course, we had the racist massacre in Buffalo, New York, where 10 black people were killed in a suburb, just in a shopping area right outside of Buffalo, New York. And... I mean, here, I mean, I think the reports were saying that the guy was like trying to make sure that the white race stayed, didn't didn't get marginalized or whatever. So he thought killing, you know, black people in the middle of in Buffalo, New York was was the solution. And I mean, and I believe this is tied to other similar shootings elsewhere in the country that, that were racially motivated and. You know, just just here, you know, so there's another one and then. And then also at uh, Robb Elementary School, there was a massacre in Uvalde, Texas, where 19 were killed. I believe it was uh, two teachers and the rest were, were children, students that were killed. And, and I happened to be in Texas at the time. Um, I, was in, I was in Dallas, which I think was maybe like, I think it's like about four hours away from, from the town where this took place. Um, so just being that close to it and obviously having a kid in elementary school, that one hits home too. And so I guess it's just tragic that there were three extreme incidents of violence, kind of in different scenarios. One was a school, one was a one was a you know public place with elders, um, and, and just and just you know grown folk doing their thing, and then a journalist um, in Israel. So uh, and, oh, and there was a there was a there was a shooting at a Taiwanese church too as well, I believe. Um, that that took place right because that one was mentioned by Steve Kerr. So okay, so I was in Texas 
at the time, at, you know, when that was taking place and or when the Evalde shooting happened. And that was when the Western Conference finals were happening in the NBA. And I remember Steve Kerr, who was the coach of the Warriors, got on got on the in the press room or whatever and he didn't talk about basketball at all. I, I really love what he said. He was basically just like, you know, we're gonna we're gonna play a game, whatever like all that stuff is important not important right now. He he specifically called out Mitch McConnell and and basically the other Republican senators who are not voting on HR HR eight, which uh was a was a fairly widely supported piece of legislation that would require background checks for people purchasing firearms and i mean i think his words like rung rung really really true i mean he was just like enough of these moments of silence enough of this just inaction i mean people are dying people are taking extremist views and you know killing people and 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 it's just not not okay um and and it's not okay for anybody. I mean, and then to think of children, right? Like that's just, you know, something's got to change. And, and so, and, and that's, that's kind of a, a, an update from that prior episode that I did, but it, it also kind of gets into this episode of politics and why certain things do and don't get moved forward. Um, But before we get into that too much more, I want to also acknowledge that Roe v. Wade, I, I know this w- was, um, spoken about this was leaked like a month or so ago but roe v wade is officially now overturned uh, which makes the federal stance on abortion null and void and now states can handle abortion however they want and also what was concerning about that was that uh, the roe v wade case had a lot of other transcending downs downstream impacts on other policies whether it was gay marriage and 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 all this other thing. I think uh it's just a huge huge momentum shift in the courts but it also raises an interesting question as to why the courts are where that particular issue has taken place yes it's at a federal level but it hasn't been written in the law which obviously would make it a lot harder to you know or not harder but just it would be a different process to 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 reverse it. I mean, obviously Trump came in and he wanted to get rid of the the Affordable Care Act, which he didn't do. Um, and so obviously, like if it was that if it was as easy as it is, if it was that easy to overturn laws, he would have done that if he could. Um, so I don't know. It's just interesting that that we've relied on Supreme Court decision decisions to make c- cases for us, um, where really like certain things, certain things that are so tied to health, our lives, our our well being really should be codified in the law, but they're not. So anyway, all those things are part of the reason why I wanted to talk about politics in this episode. My fire for this episode was really relit when I happened to catch a Democracy Now! episode back in May. I think it was May 18th. And it was after some key primary elections in Pennsylvania, Kentucky, Oregon, North Carolina, and and Idaho. And there were a couple of gubernatorial races, but a lot of... uh, congressional races too that were that were taking place and there were some progressive candidates of note who were running now their first guest was Dave Sirota who basically wrote an article called they're not even pretending anymore democratic leaders are joining with oligarchs to try to permanently destroy the progressive movement and he basically goes into detail and I'll link to to both the democracy now episode and uh his piece that basically shows that Big 
super PACs and big corporate money funneled through the Democratic Party is basically used being used to influence primary elections against progressive candidates. So rather than and, and that and they're, and they're meddling in local politics and local situations with federally raised DNC money or, or you know Democratic Party money money through you know super PACs and all these other you know investment agencies in in politics and. What, and, and so and they also had Nina Turner on, who was a congressional re- a candidate in in Ohio, and she lost because while so despite having a 24 point lead, you know, at some point in the campaign, super PAC money started coming in and that lead shrank and it became a really close vote and she ended up losing. Uh, Summer Lee, which was, who was talked about in this particular case, she's in she's in Pennsylvania. Similar case. She had a 20, she had a 20 some odd point lead in the polls. These super PACs get involved, and it was really, really close down to wire. But I, but I, but she did end up winning, which is great. Um, but Nina Turner made the point that that election shouldn't have been that close. And what's happening is that we're losing the voice of the people because the super PACs with their money are influencing the the tide of the conversation. They're influencing the media coverage, and they're in, influencing voters voters' decision decisions. Where if it was literally just candidates saying what they think they want to do and and really engaging with with constituents we would really get a feel for what what folks actually want and so if the early polls were polls were showing that you know lee for example is you know fighting for things that people want that that's meaningful and the fact that outside money and i'm i'm using that air quotes here cuz it's it's outside money but it's within the party which is which is very very telling that you know, the Democratic behemoth would rather see a centrist, corporatized, you know, you know, more capitalistically aligned candidate than somebody who might actually be resonating with the people on some more progressive uh, notions. And I know from from for Nina Turner, particularly, I mean, she had has a, a strong platform around a lot of different issues that I could understand why the corporate elite wouldn't be a, wouldn't be kind of in line with it. I mean, she has a 21st century economic bill of rights that is, you know, basically about adequate housing, adequate jobs, uh, making sure that people aren't being exploited, things like that. Um, she has good good ideas around um, public education and Medicare for all, things of that nature. So, you know, you kind of understand why the opposition is there. Assuming, of course, that we realize that the Democratic Party is really just another version of a, of the Republican Party in terms of its being a capitalistic party, a party of, you know, keeping the status quo as it is for the most part. Um, it has a couple of different policies on, on, on social issues and on other things, which are which I would prefer better than than things that the Republicans Republicans tend to talk about. But they're, they're not really necessarily about the people when we think of the people. And in this society where the rich are getting richer and the rest of us are staying where we're at or getting worse in terms of poverty and and lack of wealth and all that. I mean, the Democrats are really going to be more and more estranged from the masses. And so it's really interesting to see both parties trying to fight to convince people that really have nothing to do with a capitalist's interests, um, you know, still trying to get our votes. I mean, Nina Turner and and from what I understand from this episode, Summer Lee and others are really speaking to the issues of people and are getting momentum. And I think it gets scary for the elite when 
when massive numbers of people are really starting to question things like healthcare, education, safety, public safety, violence, all that kind of stuff, um, economic justice, um, you know, all of those things start to chip away at the logic that capitalism has been trying to drill into us this whole time. And, you know, obviously, if we do that, then then <laughs> the whole the whole thing comes into question. And, and, and obviously, those in power, those with the money, those with a lot of influence right now are, are, are subject to lose it. So and and as has been said before, nobody with power gives it up willingly. So anyway, I want to cut to my state of Maryland real quick with, for another just brief bone to pick that I have with the, with the political process, which is that I'm registered as an independent and I can therefore not vote in any meaningful party primary because as a quote unquote outsider, again, I can't meddle in the Republican primary or the Democratic primary or whatever, because I'm not registered in that party. Um, and so I think that kind of, that sucks as like an, an, as an individual voter, but it's all it's 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 an extra slap in the face when you see at the national level you see organizations donating super money like you, so DNC super PACs that are based federally or whatever why are they donating to a campaign that it, that's a small small campaign in a tiny district so and so somewhere USA you know influencing what is happening there when they have no feet on the ground no 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 skin in the game in terms of what people are actually dealing with down there um, that's just another version of outsiders kind of meddling in, in the situation. Now, I'm not an outsider in the sense that I'm from Maryland. So, like, I, I should have some voice in what's taking place in Maryland. But because I don't have a party affiliation, I can't vote in the primaries. Um, or at least, again, I know there's some things I could, that are on my ballot. But most basically, the, <laughs> I can't vote for most, most, of, most of what's meaningful. Um, and in Maryland's case, there's actually a very interesting situation where um, – one of the mayoral candidates is Wes Moore, who uh, he, he I read his book, you know, the, the other Wes Moore years ago when I was, I guess, ooh, I don't know what year that was. I, I feel like I was in college, maybe out, out of college when, when I read that. And that was a really great book. I, I genuinely like him as a person. I think he's a pretty fairly moderate, but I think he is willing to try new things at the same time. Um, I actually uh, worked to get him to speak at my former employer. Um, so I actually have a picture with him, which is pretty cool. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I have to, I have to dig more into him and see, you know, how much, you know, how, how much he's changed or what, what, what's been different and where he's at now, um, after reading that book. So yeah, that's something that I, that I definitely want to, want to tap into a little bit more. So I already alluded to this, but I want to dive into this a slight bit too. Another big issue is, political campaign costs and contributions and all that kind of stuff. And I think, first of all, it's just crazy how expensive it is to run a campaign. I, I got a glimpse of this from my buddy Jazz, who was running. Um, and actually, I have a, a buddy, Chris, who, who's been in he's been in city government in Baltimore for a while now. And I mean, it, the money's just stupid. It's, it, it's just mind boggling how much money it takes to really run a campaign, especially on a national level, um, or I should say at a at, you know, for a national office. Uh, so for Congress or Senate or something like that, it's it's nuts. So I know there's several states that have limits on contributions that, that individuals can, can give. Um, some states have none. In fact, Alabama has no limits on any kind of donations. And I've, I found this really cool PDF by the National Conference of State Legislatures um, that basically breaks down each 
state and what its limitations are with respect to individual to candidate contributions, state party to candidate contributions, PAC to candidate, corporate to candidate, and union to candidate contributions. Um, in Maryland, I think it's like a six, let me see, yeah, Maryland is a $6,000 limit, um, and that's pretty much the same for a lot of the other categories. Um, so, it's it, but but I mean, Alabama has no limits at all, of course. You know what I mean. So like, it's just interesting how how different states feel about th- those types of issues, and how that imp- impacts the politics in the, in in that state or in that area. One thing that I that I I, know, I remember Arizona being particularly uh, progressive in terms of limiting the amount of 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 not only donations coming in but really ca- helping to 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 quell the costs of the campaigns themselves. So, uh, and I think, I think there's a couple other states that are starting to do that now as well. So that's another thing I, I think needs to really change is making sure that campaigns are not as costly to run so that more regular people can run. Cause it feels like you have to be rich to run. So that's another big problem. The last piece I'm going to talk about is gerrymandering, which has bugged me for years and I actually saw it. I posted, I reposted it on Instagram a bit earlier this year, but um, I follow Represent Us, which is a pretty cool politically, you know, politically charged, uh, you know, account basically. And they they posted the number of a number of states that are heavily, heavily gerrymandered, and Maryland is one of the worst gerrymandered states. I didn't know that, uh, and it, it's it's it you know that's one of those like punches to like you know oh you think of gerrymandering as a bad thing oh especially if it's like Republicans, but obviously the Democrats are doing it too. And actually in the episode of Democracy Now!, towards the end of that episode, they talked about how Democrats tried to gerrymander a bit uh, and play with a little bit of the districts in New York, and that was struck down by the courts, and it kind of backfired. And now several incumbent, uh, or not several, but a few incumbent Democratic candidates or Democratic representatives currently serving are having to go up against each other. Some were redistricted out of their own district that they're representing and stuff like that. And that's part of what, what happened to jazz too. I mean, his district didn't include a lot of his state legislative district. So, um, that impacted his ability to run and really have, you know, name recognition. And, um, so it's, it's just weird to see how gerrymandering has become so normal. So, so, so played with, and it's really both sides the Democrats and Republicans are doing it. I live in a state that's heavily gerrymandered. So it's it's just it's really annoying. I do want to back up and explain what gerrymandering is. If anybody listening does not know what it is, um, it's basically redrawing political districts conveniently so that it makes the district more or less always Republican or Democrat. So you can think of like picture Main Street with like 10 side streets. So you've got Main Street intersecting with First Street through 10th Street. Right. Say like all the Republicans live on the east side of the street and all the democrats live on the west side of the street well you could draw the boundaries separating the east side of the street from the west side of the street to make sure so basically boundary a on the east side is always going to vote republican pretty much and the boundary on the west side is always going to vote democrat basically because you just drew the boundary that way but if you drew the if you drew the boundary right at fifth street right in the middle both both uh districts would be hotly contested every time and while that would be great for the political process and for just, you know, us to just really engage with each other on a, on a you know, especially in Congress every two years, that's a lot of work. It's a lot. It's tiring. It's it's just exhausting to really have to dig your teeth in and fight that hard every time. So basically, 
over and over, over and over again, districts have been gerrymandered to make districts boring, basically. And that's why primaries are so damn important, because the, the only movement that's going to take place in, in so many districts is at the primary level. Are you going to get a, a conservative Democrat or a, or a liberal Democrat? Are you going to get a really ultra conservative, you know, MAGA Trump report, Republican? Or are you going to get a centrist Republican? You know, so there's there's but that that all happens at the primary stage. And, and, and a lot of people aren't even tapped in and checked in at the primary level. So gerrymandering, so gerrymandering just like pisses me off from that perspective. I actually wrote a paper about this in college, more or less voluntarily. I ended up taking an elective that it that I used it for, but really I just kind of wrote it because I cared. And I I came up with this idea that I would like to share and hopefully it's not too dense to to convey verbally. This is one of those opportunities where a YouTube channel would be great because I could show some visuals that would help convey the message. Um, but basically my idea was rather rather than selecting our representatives geographically, what if we elected them based on household income brackets? So for example, if 30% of the state of Florida um, earns between zero and $50,000 a year from a household income standpoint, then a third of their representatives should also earn or come from homes that that have that zero to fifty thousand dollar income range. So I just mentioned how it se- how it seems like you have to be rich to run for political office because how how expensive it is. But what if by law, to be a representative of your quote unquote district, you had to earn what your people earn? Basically, how how drastically would that shift the political discourse? I mean, if the vast majority of congressional representatives actually made the money that their represent that their constituents make. I just feel like the conversation would be drastically different. So just to kind of like walk through this example a little bit, there are 435 representatives in the House of Representatives nationally at the congressional level. And if you were to just divide up the household income by in, in, in groups of fives, like, you know, so that there's, you know, 20%, 20, the 20% lowest, 20, the next 20%, 20%, 20%, like in terms of just household income, you would have 87 representatives across each of those groups, right? So what's really, really telling is what those dollar amounts would be. So if you did it that way, you would have 87 representatives in Congress that would make between zero and $26,000 a year, basically. Imagine that. I made, imagine 87 representatives making zero to $22,000 a year. The average household income for that group is about $12,200 a year. 87 representatives making $12,200 a year. The next group up would be another 87 representatives who make between $22,600 a year and $43,300 a year. So that's, an, again, that's 87 representatives making between twenty-two dollars and $43,000 a year. The average of, of that group nationally is $33,000 a year, right? So you'd have 87 representatives making about $12,000 a year, 87 representatives making $33,000 a year. Then the next group goes from forty-three. dollars to six, basically $70,000 a year. 
Then the next group goes from that 70 to one, all the way from 70, all the way from 70 to $112,000 a year. Imagine that. From 70K to 112, that'd be another 87 reps. And then there'd be another 87 reps that make above 112, above $112,000 a year. So to me, that's just, that's just crazy, right? Because all of them, you just feel like all of them are rich, like out of touch. I remember there was a, um, I think it was Mitt Romney years and years ago, he was running, like he, he didn't even know the price of, uh, he didn't know the price of milk because he just, he's just so disconnected from what people are day to day dealing with. Um, I mean, I think everybody might know gas prices because a lot of people drive, even if you're rich, but um you know, but I but I think if if congressional representatives actually made the money of the people that they represented, like that would just completely, completely change the game. Now, there's a problem with this. One, representatives make one hundred seventy four thousand dollars a year. By law, <laughs> so they would be in the top 20 percent of household incomes nationwide just by winning. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not sure how you, how you manage that. Cause once you, once then you just got a huge raise, um, for the vast majority of representatives, if that were the case, the other problem is there are seven States, Alaska, Delaware, Montana, North and South Dakota, Vermont, and Wyoming with only one representative. So this basically doesn't really help them because I, they just got, they just get one rep. Um, so it, it's, it's kind of, so, and it would make people, probably nauseous to think of having more representatives, but you would, you would really need more reps to, to kind of give us a, a, enough people, enough human representatives to give us a, a, fla- a to give us a, a reasonable distribution of representatives based on household income rather than just, you know, random, arbitrary, gerrymandered, boring districts. So that, that's an idea that I had. I, I, I if I'm bold, I will save the the document that I wrote back in college. Please forgive me for the, I don't know, 15 years ago, however long ago, language. And it's got, you know, cheesy, clip arty type stuff. So, I mean, you know, all that stuff was newer back then. I don't know. I'm sorry. It, just, it, look, it looks like it looks sophomoric, but I guess it was because I was probably a sophomore in college when I wrote it. Um, but anyway, so that that's kind of that's something I want people to think about. Like, what what if our representatives made the money that we make? Like, how? Like, how, I, I don't know. I just feel like college college costs would be way more of a topic. For example, I mean, student loans would be a, a bigger example. There's just so many things that would just be a, very, a much higher importance in our, in our political discourse nationwide. And it might even be better to try that at the state level. Um, I know Alabama talking about them, they have only seven con- uh, congressional representatives. And, and Alabama is a good case, too, because they are one of the poorest states in the country. And I mentioned how they also have zero limits on political campaign contributions. And it's like, it's interesting that they're, they're struggling from a, from a poverty standpoint. They also have some of the, the biggest range of those, those um, percentiles in terms of how much people are making. Um, I mentioned the gap the, nationwide. There was that that gap from seventy k to one hundred and twelve. I mean, sixty uh, percent of the people in Alabama make less than fifty seven fifty. Yeah, make make less than fifty seven thousand dollars a year, um, and eighty percent of the people in Alabama make less than ninety two. 
Um, and and that's that's just that's just crazy. Whereas like the top five percent make one hundred and sixty five thousand dollars a year in Alabama. It's like that's just crazy. And it's not a coincidence that they don't have campaign contribution limits. It's like, I don't know. I just feel like all of that's related. But in my paper, the state of Alabama has 105, at least, at least when I wrote it, it has 105 um, House delegates. So there's definitely enough, you know, human representatives there to do this concept and have, you know, representatives based be based on and represent, uh, you know, economic economic districts, so to speak, household income districts rather than the geographic districts. Another thing that people will probably say, well, wait a minute, if I have three representatives in my district of zero to $50,000 of income or whatever it is, how do we know who wins? We need, we need one winner per district, don't we? No, we don't. <laughs> That's another problem with our, with, our, with our political process. We have that winner-take-all methodology, which which screws up the ability to have multiple parties at this point. It does. It has a number of different things. Representus has a really good uh, breakdown of that. But when I, I'm a, y'all know I'm a big baseball fan. I noticed this a couple years ago, and I looked up last year's results. When the writers and journalists vote for the MVP of baseball, they use a better voting system than we use for our political candidates. They use ranked choice voting, which basically given, you know, in baseball, I'm given like 20 candidates for MVP of the league, they write in the name of each person ranked. So like, oh, I think this person's my number one MVP, my number two MVP, and my number three MVP, whatever. And points are allocated based on how, how high I rank them. So if somebody gets a lot of number two votes, um, that's pretty good. And that might beat out somebody if, if the number one votes are pretty split. So what that allows us to do is it allows us to pick our, our definitely favorite candidate, but it also allows us to give points to candidates that we could live with, um, but might not be our top favorite. And how many times in the primary, I know I feel like in the, in the Democratic presidential primary, there were so many candidates, it was like, it became, well, who do we think is going to be able to win, right? Rather than like, who do we actually like? And I feel like a ranked choice voting system would give us the opportunity, give us a little bit more voice to say, here's who I really bang with, but you know, here's some people I would tolerate. And then whoever's not on that list is like, yeah, I definitely don't like them. And they don't get, you know, any points. So it's, it's almost like voting with dollars or voting, voting with like, you know, like, uh, you know, coins or something like that. You just get, you just throw more coins at the, in the bucket you like. And, and that weighs heavier. And in aggregate, you can have a first, second and third winner so that if there's three representatives for the zero to $50,000 income range, you, you based on the ranked choice voting, you know who the top three candidates are. It's just an addition exercise based on the ranked choice voting. And I think some jurisdictions are starting to do this now. I think uh, representatives published some some smaller jurisdictions that are doing it. And, and it's exciting to see. So, you know, hopefully that can change as well. So I, I don't want to have an episode where I just complain about things. I, I want to also highlight that it's possible to change things and it's possible to actually completely rewrite your constitution, which is mind boggling to some, but we do allow amendments and that's, that doesn't seem to be too mind boggling, even though it hasn't happened all that frequently. But, you know, I know South Africa after apartheid and everything, it, it went through a long process of coming up with a new constitution. And uh, so their, their current constitution was ratified 
on December 4th, 1996. Damn, December 4th keeps coming up. I had an episode about that. Um, and it took effect on the 4th of January, 1997. And I just kind of did a little bit of reading. I, obviously, I didn't read the whole thing. It's, 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 it's a large document, of course. But one thing that struck me when I was looking at it was just how clear and how, how clear, easy to read and um, just human focused it, it was and it is, uh, which, which is great. I mean, th- there's words like it, it strives to be anti-racial, anti-sexist, things of that nature. It starts with a uh, fairly robust Bill of Rights, which is, you know, really exhaustive, far more exhaustive, exhaustive than ours. It actually has like something like, like 30 rights, something like that. Um, and it covers everything from, you know, obviously like life, dignity, um, it, it directly says, it's funny how their, their right on slavery is also, similarly, it's the 13th um, item in the Constitution. It says, no one may be subjected to slavery, servitude, or first labor, period. And I know, <laughs> I know here in the United States, we have the 13th Amendment, which says that slavery and involuntary servitude, unless duly convicted of a crime, shall be abolished. Ah, you didn't abolish anything. Um, so I just love how it's very clear. It's to the, it's to concise. It's to the point. Um, they talk about freedom of expression. Um, they talk about freedom. Uh, they have political rights. You know, you can form and, and be a part of a political pro- party. Um, um, freedom of movement and residence. Like everybody has the right to a passport. Uh, everybody has the right to leave and return to the to the, to the republic. Um, there's even labor relations in here too. Everybody has the right to fair labor pra- labor practices. Every worker has the right to form a union. Every employer has the right to form employer organizations as well. Um, and so they just they just have a very clear idea of what they want to do in terms of their country. Um, they have a section on the environment. Everybody has the right to an environment that is not harmful to their health or well-being and to have the environment protected for the present and future generations through reasonable legislative and other measures that you know prevent pollution, ecological degradation, among other things. Um, talks about property, talks about um, ho- housing rights, food, uh, health care, food, water security, um, it says everybody has access to health and healthcare services, including reproductive healthcare, sufficient food and water, things of that nature. Um, I thought there, I saw something else in here about just, just people have, oh yeah, they have, um, rights to language and culture. Everybody has the right to participate in the culture and in the cultural life of their choice. Um, but no one exercising these rights may do so in a manner inconsistent with any provision of the Bill of Rights. So obviously, like, you can't offend anybody else's rights in your culture, but otherwise, you have the right to, to, to do your culture and be, be, be what you want to do. You know what I'm saying? Do what you want to do. Um, so it's just, a, it's just a really interesting comparison when we look at ours, because ours is very archaically written, and it's unclear and it's outright racist in some certain areas. I mean, an article to the constitution talks about, you know, the, has the original three fifths clause for, for how enslaved people would count for representative uh, district in repre- representative districts. So, you know, I, I mean, the idea of reconstructing a constitution sounds gargantuan. And I mean, it is, but I mean, the revolutionary war in the United States ended almost a decade before the constitution was ratified. So it's, it's not, inconceivable to, to function as a country while rehashing your constitution. And the way South Africa's reads, it just, it just sounds more modern. It seems more consistent with what human people actually want. And it, you know, it's, it's, it would take a lot to get that done here, but it, why not? 
why not? Why why not write a document that's that's just more tangible, more achievable, attainable for humans to understand, and really speaks to what we need and what we want? I mean, I just think that that's not rocket science. Maybe maybe it is. Maybe I'm I'm oversimplifying it. But anyway, that's all I got today. I appreciate you listening to this episode. I know it's a little bit of a, a, a dense, detailed rant of sorts in the political sphere, but um. But I don't know. I just think these are important issues to talk about. I think it's an, these are important uh, things to challenge in our in our thinking and and and, and in our leaders. So as as the political season winds down, or or I guess ramps up, I guess as we get to the um, general elections, I'll continue to kind of chime in and give some updates on that, um, especially when uh, the the. Um, Maryland primary takes place. We'll kind of keep tabs on that along with the other big races that are that are taking place. So we'll see how it all shakes out. All right, y'all. So the song I'm rocking to right now is <laughs> it's funny right now. I haven't been listening to much music myself. If I'm listening to music, it's with the kiddo and he is all about Wicked right now. He, he just he. He loves Wicked. He wants to see it live. I mean, he's he's just all about Wicked. So he he he's been oscillating between Wicked probably about eighty percent of the time and The Wiz about twenty percent of the time. So, you know, like it or not, I've been rocking to <laughs> The Wiz and Wicked uh, for for the last I don't know. It seems like forever, but it's probably been a solid month or two or three. Um, but anyway, but anyway, nah, it's cool. It's fun. It's fun to see him get into into the stories. That's that's what it is for him. It's it's really just the telling of the stories and all that kind of stuff. I mean, he was in the Hamilton last year, so um, yeah, it's just it's fun to see fun to see that uh, that interest be sparked in him. So anyway, all right, y'all. As always, you can get at me on Instagram at Real Adult. That's R E A L D A D U L T. On there, you can hit me up. Let me know what you thought about this episode, any prior episodes, or let me know if you have any ideas for future episodes. As always, I hope to catch you here next time. Until then, be safe, be well, peace. Who knows, it's just life. This podcast recorded, produced, and edited by me. All thoughts and views expressed on the show represent that moment in time. Participants have the right to be wrong learn and reshape their ideas as the journey through life continues. Please remember to like this episode. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you